Multi-agent systems involve the interaction of autonomous agents that may be acting independently or in collaboration with each other. Examples of these systems include financial markets, robot soccer matches, and automated warehouses. Today's guest, Peter Stone, is a professor of computer science at UT Austin who specializes in multi-agent systems and robotics. In this episode, we discuss some of the canonical problems of a multi-agent system. And these problems have some overlap with the canonical problems of distributed systems. For example, the problems of coordinating between different agents with varying levels of trust. This resembles the problem of establishing consistency across servers in a database cluster. Peter has recently contributed to the 100-year study of artificial intelligence, so we also had a chance to discuss the opportunities and the roadblocks for AI in the near future. And since Peter teaches computer science at my alma mater, UT Austin, I had to ask him a few questions about the curriculum. Peter Stone is a professor of computer science at the University of Texas at Austin. Peter, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for inviting me. Your work focuses on multi-agent systems. What is a multi-agent system? So to define a multi-agent system, first we need to define what's an agent or an autonomous agent, we say in artificial intelligence. An autonomous agent is a program, it could be a robot, it could be a, um, a software program that senses the environment in some way, takes some decision making, um, takes some decisions based on a decision making process, and then actually executes those actions in its environment in a closed loop, meaning without any person giving input. So for instance, a robot uh, takes in camera input, decides how to move its motors, and then actually executes it, and then gets new input as a result of that. So that's that's a single autonomous agent. An example might be an autonomous car. It might be a autonomous bidding agent. Could be a chess playing program that actually has to to move the pieces either on a computer screen or in the, in the real world. A multi agent system is a collection of these autonomous agents. So it could be a group of agents that are. Um, either on the same team, or they could be opponents, or they could just be all operating in the same environment. So a group of autonomous cars that are all trying to navigate through an intersection, that's a multi-agent system. Or a team of robot soccer players, each of them controlled by a different process, that's a multi-agent system. And the key is that there's not one program making decisions for all of them, but rather each of them deciding individually what actions to take trying to maximize some result, either as a team or against an opponent. And there are collaborative multi-agent systems where the different agents are operating together, and there are also ones where the systems, the agents in the system are operating completely independently. Perhaps an independent uh, example might be within trading, and perhaps a collaborative example might be soccer. Can you give some contrast between how the paradigms in the collaborative environment differ from the ones in the completely independent agent environments? Sure. And I think uh, there's actually a, a spectrum that goes beyond independent. So there's fully collaborative on one extreme. And on the other extreme, it's not independent, but rather fully adversarial, where the uh, the other agents are actively trying to thwart you, that have they have the opposite goals as you. So for instance, in robot soccer, you both have teammates um, who have exactly the same goal as you, and you have adversaries that have the you know, diametrically opposed goal. 
And then in the middle, there's independent, like either trading agents or traffic, where you know your goal is to get the the car or the um, or the training agent to maximize its own profits or its own you know minimize its own travel time without much regard for for what the impact will be on the others. Um, so I think it's useful to think of that whole spectrum with independent being in the middle. But yeah, to get to your question, it does um, the assumptions that can be made in each of these cases are different. So if you're in an adversarial situation, you need to protect against the worst case. In other words, you need to take actions that don't leave any vulnerabilities because the assumption is that the other agents are going to try to make things as bad for you as possible. Whereas when you're in a collaborative setting, you can perhaps make a make the assumption that you know, even if they're not necessarily fully competent, um, the the teammates aren't going to be actively trying to um, trying to thwart you. And so you know they may have different levels of skill from you, but uh, but you don't have to protect against the worst case. You can be more optimistic. And so um, you know it's it's sort of different uh, different programming paradigms res uh, arise as a result. Speaking of the actual programming, within these systems, we're often making assumptions like the network communication is low bandwidth, it's unreliable, and in a field like distributed databases, we have well-defined vocabulary for talking about these real-world problems that result from a network, for example. But I imagine that these lead to different problems that are less well-defined if you're talking about something like robot soccer or trading. Are the methods for handling something like a network partition well understood for multi-agent systems? I mean, that's a good question. I think there's there are a lot of similarities between sort of networks and, and multi-agent systems, distributed systems and multi-agent systems. Some of the, I think it's less precisely defined in multi-agent systems cases, but there are, for instance, uh, there's a body of research within multi-agent systems on coalition formation, for example. Um, what's the best way to partition agents into sub-teams um, or to figure out which other agents you want to um, form a coalition with for some temporary uh, sub-goal that needs to be solved? And, um, and so, you know, I, I think there, some of the concepts are, are similar, but because the... Um, Sort of the environment or the uh, the tasks that that agents in multi-agent systems need to um, need to address are more sort of open-ended and complex. It's not as as clear-cut as in the distributed systems case. How to define the the terminology and the um, and the various sort of subclasses of problems. Okay, so let's take an example of robot soccer, which is a multi-agent system, but unlike something that is almost purely digital, like trading. In robot soccer, you also have the physics of the real world to deal with. So when you have physical variability in terrain or the joints on the robot that's playing soccer can get too warm, is the handling of those unpredictable circumstances similar to how you would handle something like a network partition in, in distributed systems, or is it, is it not like that? Is that not the, not the same paradigm? Well, I'm I'm not a uh, I'm not an expert in distributed systems, so I can't say you know from within you know exactly what whether the uh, you know I can't compare the two um, directly. But I, my my understanding is that that it's not uh, it's not exactly the same. And you know, like I said, there's some there's some ideas that can um, that can uh, transfer across the the various uh, the two subfields. Um, but uh, you know, I, they're not. Um, 
the 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 kinds of the, you know the, what you specifically brought up in the robot soccer case of joints heating up and that changing the um, the behavior. The, these tend to be best dealt with um, at the individual agent level. Um, these are you know in in a, in multi-agent systems, there's another dimension beyond you know whether they're collaborative versus adversarial or dependent. There's also whether it's a large system of simple agents or a, or a smaller system of more complex agents. Robot soccer is sort of on the extreme of um, a small system of complex agents, where when you have faults at the level of joints and uh, things like that on a robot, those are best dealt with by the individual agent because it has the computing capacity to do that as opposed to when you have you know, large large um, systems of much more simple agents, these are sometimes called swarms, um, then you have to, you know, be much, you have the concept, concepts of, of redundancy and, and fallibility and th those kinds of things, I think are much more, much uh, more similar to the distributed systems kinds of paradigms. Where can machine learning be applied to a multi-agent system? So again, uh, there's there's both um, at the uh, individual agent level. There's lots of opportunities for um, for machine learning, um, which and and uh, but I think you know that that's partly uh, independent of the multi-agent system aspect of it. Then within the multi-agent system itself, um, some of the classic problems are uh, agent known as agent modeling or teammate modeling or opponent modeling or sort of the the subversions of that. Where what need, what an agent needs to do is um, determine as quickly as possible what are the characteristics of its current teammates. Um, what are what's a model of of how we can predict what actions they'll take as a function of the actions we take. Um, that's sort of one subclass of problems. Um, and then there's just more standard decision making um, decision making challenges that come up with individual agents or um, also agents that are within a multi agent system where the agent needs to figure out how best to respond or what actions to take, given the models that it's learned in the agent modeling um, sub uh, sort of sub process. So your PhD thesis specifically covered layered learning in multi-agent systems. Is layered learning the same thing that is referred to as deep learning today? No, it's actually very different. So um, layered learning, the, the concept is that uh, there are many concepts um, or there are many sort of tasks that an agent or a multi-agent system will need to accomplish that can't be, at least given current methods, can't be learned what's known as end-to-end, -end, where, where you just take the inputs um, of the, say, the cameras coming into the, um, the, the, the pixels that come into the camera of a robot and learn a function that goes straight to the joints that the, the uh, joint angles the, the legs should move in, but rather... Um, you're going to need to break it down into a hierarchy of subtasks and learn each of them individually. So, you know, in the same way that if we're teaching a, um, you know, a kid to, to play, um, to play a game of chess, for example, we might, you know, teach subconcepts such as, you know, what, what's a fork or how do you castle or when should, you know, how do you move upon or things like that. Each of these, um, are layers in a layered learning system, um, and we've recently uh, we recently published a, a paper where we use 19 different layers in a, in a layered learning learning system for in a very complex uh, robot soccer simulation um, where some of the layers were things like uh, walking fast or kicking the ball long or or standing up and, and things like that and they all got sort of um, patched together 
And it's in within layered learning, you can use different machine learning algorithms within each of the layers. Deep learning, on the other hand, um, is a, it's another word for a complex neural network, which is a particular machine learning algorithm, a particular type of supervised learning algorithm um, that can have multiple layers. But in contrast to layered learning, it's typically associated with the goal of doing end-to-end -end learning, where you, you try to take a very complex process and... Um, and learn without having the submodules, but learn straight from inputs to outputs. And there are some things these days where that's possible. Um, the premise of layered learning is that there remain uh, tasks or you know, classes of tasks where this end-to-end -end learning that, that's, um, that's possible for, with, with deep learning um, won't be feasible. And then we need to use this more hierarchical uh, subtask decomposition that's, that's used um, within layered learning. So your PhD thesis was written in 1998. Can you describe the state of machine learning back in 1998? Yeah, so that's a ways back. So, uh, but but um, <laughs> I'm just curious for the historical perspective. Yeah, I mean, machine learning is is um, at that point was sort of uh, maybe uh, maybe that was prior to the um, to the transition to much more statistical methods, or maybe sort of at the beginning. Uh, of that transition, there has always, even from before then, there's been a, there's been subcommunities within machine learning working on um, sort of Bayesian statistical reasoning, um, working on neural networks that are were sort of numerical. But I think that the the largest body of work within machine learning at that time, if I remember correctly, was still more symbolic uh, supervised learning methods. Um, and uh, there was also sort of the beginnings of well, I mean, we were sort of a decade into um, the, the sort of revitalization of, of reinforcement learning, which, which sort of was um, reinvigorated at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. Um, and so there, that was sort of also a, a fairly small subcommunity within machine learning. Um, and people were really focusing on sort of more and more complex uh, supervised learning methods. And it was you know, at that time starting to become much more, uh, much more statistical and numeric in nature. Um, and that sort of that sort of trend has accelerated and continued uh, to today. Um, and you know, th there's been between then and now there have been various different um, new algorithms that have that have sort of come to the forefront. Um, for a while, uh, support vector machines was were a, were a very hot uh, algorithm within within machine learning. That that was after the the late 90s, if I re if I remember correctly. That was more in the middle of the 2000s. And then very, you know, in, in the most recent um, past, uh, neural network models have sort of reemerged and, and jumped to the fore in, in uh, at, at least for, for some, um, some large class of tasks that people have been working on recently. What do you see as the drivers for how those trends change for you know, why people go from focusing on support vector machines to deep neural nets? Is there is it that people see a specific breakthrough happen and then they extrapolate in their heads like, oh, this is all the things that something could be done with this particular application, and then that continues until they see the next shiny object? Or um, maybe you could, you know, give me a depiction of how it how you see those trends being defined. From your point of view, yeah, I mean it's a little bit of um, there's there's a lot of different factors that go into play. Sometimes it can be a theoretical breakthrough that gets people excited. Um, sometimes it can be sort of a landmark result where where an algorithm that's you know 
um, is, is suddenly able to accomplish something that uh, that wasn't possible before. Um, often when this happens, there, there is this, this sort of bandwagon effect that lots of people do jump on a bandwagon and, and abandon the old methods, I, in my opinion, sometimes too quickly. Um, and, and sometimes you get sort of everybody, uh, you know, sort of herding over towards the, the new shiny object, like you say. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes it's, uh, it would be wise for the community to keep a more, more balanced approach and, and view all of these different algorithms as, as more tools in the toolbox so that they each have strengths and weaknesses, each have situations that they're, they're best for. But, but, you know, it, it's, uh, it's sort of, you know, human nature that when there is a very exciting breakthrough or landmark, um, that, uh, that people are very, you know, become very excited about sort of investigating what its limitations are. And that's sort of, uh, you know, that often happens. And so, um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, I think it, it pro it's probably not only in machine learning or, or artificial intelligence that this happens. Um, but we, we have seen it, uh, we have seen it frequently over the years. When you see the, the success of deep learning applied to domains that are as, uh, human-like or flexible as Go or poker, do you, what are the applications that you think are are not going to be uh, ripe for deep learning? Where is the um, where are the constraints of the of the problem domain that deep learning is going to be applicable to? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's that's part of the reason that there's a lot of, of sort of frenzy right now within that area of people people working on it is because we don't yet know what the constraints are going to be. There's there's you know there've been um, sort of a series of sort of surprising um, su surprising successes, and uh, it's you know it's never it's not clear when when something isn't working if it's uh, if it's a fundamental limit or if it's just that we haven't tried the right network architecture yet. So there's a lot of incentive to try uh, to try out new things um, so far it, you know the, what we know about deep learning is that um, that it requires a lot of data um, and uh, to, to really you know get the, the most impressive successes requires a lot of data a lot of computation um, and uh, as well as sometimes um, innovative and, and uh, in, yeah, innovative network structures um, the part that we don't know, you know, is, is what the limitation of the network structures are going to be and, and maybe some of the, you know, um, fine tuning aspects of, of the algorithm, there's still, still possible room for improvement. Um, I, I, I think that there are, uh, the biggest limitation that we, we know of right now is, is with, uh, the requirements for, for this large data and large computation and computation always gets cheaper. Um, data is likely to remain a constraint. And so there are, you know, there's a large class of problems where you want to be able to learn from a small number of examples. Um, if, you know, going back to multi-agent systems, if you're in a situation where you're, you're on a team with another agent and, and you, you, you know, you only get to interact with it for three or four minutes and you want to improve over that time, you're not going to be getting a lot of data in that kind of a setting. Um, you know, a neural network may not be as, um, as appropriate as, as other possible methods. Um, so I think, you know, that is one of, so far, it's one of the fundamental limitations is that, you know, you, you need to be in applications where there's lots of data. Um, and I do think that there's, um, you know, th there are uh, comp complex problems that, that will not, uh, you know, that will be more, that will remain too difficult for end-to-end -end learning. Um, but you know, again, that's hard to say. It's hard. To, that's not something we can prove. There are, you know, there are certainly problems that are outside the realm of end-to-end -end learning uh, currently. 
but you know we don't we don't know and if with with additional advances and additional data and computation maybe they'll fall too so it's um you know there's there's sort of practical limits and there's there's uh fundamental limits and um you know but but i i do think um that there will you know there will always it will always remain a very useful tool in the toolbox and it remains to be seen what what's the you know grand sum of problems that it can be uh, applied to it sounds like you have some intuition about where those bounds for what we might be able to do with deep learning lie but you're not sure where to um where to draw the line or how to phrase it um I mean, how, did, would you have seen? Did you did you feel like Go or Poker would have been uh, things that you would have anticipated being being tackled by deep learning? Both are you know, domains that people have been working on for many years, and I've tracked progress in in both of them. I've seen very you know sort of uh, improvements in in both both from the algorithmic side and from the um, and from the sort of the, the uh, data and, and methodology, training methodology side, um, I, I think Go, the Go result was, was surprising. I mean, there had been, um, there had been progress over the years. Um, and there had been, you know, the, a year or two before we had started to see that there were advances both from the, um, the planning sort of reinforcement learning side and from the pattern matching side of uh, the, where the deep learning plays the role, trying to predict what an expert would do. And um, there were, you know, sort of surprisingly competent systems that were using just one method or the other. And so, you know, it, it was inevitable that they, that, uh, that somebody would try combining them. Um, it wasn't clear when they were combined how successful they would be or, you know, if they would get to the point of being able to beat the, the world champion. I think um, I and, and, and most people thought that that would still be several years away. Um, but you know, it, it wasn't out of nowhere. There was definitely you know there there been pe people working on it, and there's been progress being made. And same thing with poker. That there's, um, it, it's several years ago. There was uh, the, the group from Alberta um, had a, a tournament against human champions at Heads Up Limit Poker, which is much simpler than Heads Up Lo No Limit. They'd been working on extending to the more difficult problem for years, and and also had been um, making improvements. And so you know, I don't I don't think these were um, they're a big deal. I think they they are landmarks, but they're not. Uh, you know, they weren't they weren't out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, these games have a really big branching factor, but it's still not unfathomable, and we can still define all the branches pretty easily. It seems like there's domains like global economic policy where we wouldn't even know where to begin for how to define all the branches, or like. Uh, complex medical treatment but the, i guess it, it also remains to be seen are the humans even doing a good job do we even have a good understanding of how to benchmark how well we're doing as you know global economic policymakers? yeah i mean you know to the nice thing about games is that they're very well defined you either win or you lose um and uh there's um you know there you can get a lot of data they're in a sort of stylized setting you can run controlled experiments um, yeah, there, there's many other problems that, that don't in the real world that don't have those properties. And uh, you know, so it, it's, a, it's a challenge to, to even define the problem, let alone learn it. You're on this panel that's conducting a 100-year study on artificial intelligence. What are the goals of the 100-year study? Yeah, so actually, I, uh, I 
chaired the first study panel within the 100-year study, where we, we focused a, uh, for sort of one year on um, writing the first report. My, my role in the 100-year study is, is now concluded once we've published that report. I the 100-year study, though, is, um, is a, it's a, a, as it sounds, it's a longitudinal study of artificial intelligence to try to, um, over the years, starting in 2015, well, I mean, it was constituted in 2014, but the first study panel was um, 2015-16. And the idea is to have study panels constituted every five years for at least the next 100 years, snapshotting the state of the art of artificial intelligence, what the progress has been, um, looking somewhat to the to the future as to what what we would predict the uh, realistic benefits and risks of um, of artificial intelligence are. What are the um, what are the barriers between um, where we are now and achieving the benefits? And also, what are some of the proactive um, efforts, the steps that can be taken from a policy perspective um, and others, public relations perspective, things like this to maximize the likelihood that the the overall impacts of artificial intelligence technologies will be um, much more beneficial than, than detrimental. As with any technology, there is potential for, for positive and negative impacts. And um, and so this, you know, the hundred year study is is both um, study, you know, both trying to uh, catalog or carry, you know, snapshot over the years where the field is and also do some sort of introspection as to what what steps people in the field can take to uh, to help the the progress be beneficial for for, uh, for society in general. People talk about the threats to it being not beneficial. The I think on one side of them you have the discussion of automation and then you get to basic income and whatnot, and then on the other side you have the uh, Nick Bostrom. You know, we're afraid that artificial intelligence is going to t- turn everybody into paperclips because we get an out of control paperclip optimizer. Um, and then I think people like Oren Etzioni, who was on the panel with you, I had him on the show, and he seemed to think that this is really not like the latter, uh, the, the, the paperclip optimizer problem is really not something we should be concerned with. Um, I felt he was a little more sympathetic to the concerns of the automation, people getting automated out of jobs, sort of the Martin Ford type of uh, um, worries. What are the concerns that you have, and what are the practical constraints that, or practical uh, measures that we can start to consider uh, around those concerns? Yeah. Um, well, not surprisingly, as you said, Oren and I were on the panel together, and and you know we share share the views on uh, on this that the um, that the paperclip optimizer uh, issue is is not a, a at least not a near term horizon concern, um, and that you know um, that though that's uh, overblown. Um, I, typically, people's views towards artificial intelligence often fueled by science fiction you know the movies and um and books are very extreme either in one direction or the other either that the ai technologies will lead to a a utopian society solve all the world's problems or the opposite a a dystopian society where you know society is destroyed in some way or another um and in in the ai 100 report we really didn't even give credence to those uh to those sort of extreme views but the um the the issues regarding uh, changes to the workplace th- those concerns i do think are are very worth 
paying attention to. Um, it's AI technologies, and again, it's important to recognize artificial intelligence is not one thing, it's not one technology, it's a collection of different technologies and each will have different impacts um, over time. But you know, I, I think as with many past technologies, it, um, these technologies that come out of the field of artificial intelligence will impact the workplace. Um, that, that is nothing new. There, there's been lots of technologies in the past that have, um, that have replaced jobs there was a time when every time a, a person placed a phone call to another person, there was an operator, a human operator that would connect the call with a real wire. And then when the automated switch was um, invented, that was no longer necessary. That whole class of jobs was destroyed, but it was much more difficult to predict that a company like Cisco and others that make switches would employ so many people in today's economy. And so I think, you know, that's, that's going to repeat uh, with this, um, with AI technologies, people will, be able to envision much more quickly the jobs that will be replaced, but uh, will be it'll be harder for them to envision the new jobs that will be created. Um, another, and, and we we uh, say this in the report as well that that most jobs um, will be transformed or you know changed in some way uh, before they're well before they're replaced. And you know so. For instance, um, medical diagnosis software is not in any risk of replacing human doctors in the near term, but doctors are going to need to know how to interact with this software and how to use it to leverage their decision-making capabilities. And same with teachers and same with many different professions will be um, transformed, but not replaced. And then the other, I think, important point is that, you know, as with most technology, there's a potential for it to... Um, to increase the overall wealth of society. And on the surface, that should be a good thing. Production becomes more efficient. Distribution becomes more efficient. In effect, society as a whole becomes wealthier. But we do need to also pay attention to the effect on the gap between the, um, the, the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And it is possible that some of the technologies when it's, um, will, will cause lead to the concentration of wealth in a smaller number of people's hands if we, if we don't take active steps to prevent that. And, um, and so that's something we do address in detail in the report, that's, that it uh, would be wise now to think as a society um, how, should, how we should react to the possibility of, of, um, of these technologies co concentrating wealth in fewer people's hands. And you know, historically, when the gap between the rich and the poor becomes too stark, um, there, that's, that can lead to revolution. And, you know, so, so to be able to head that off, we need to be able to figure out how to keep um, a greater degree of, of uh, equitability within society. You have some background in music, and there's been significant work done in the area of human-computer interaction for composition. Uh, what what parts of the composition workflow do you think are ripe for AI assistance? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I actually have a, a PhD student right now um, who's who's working on sort of the whole gamut of, of musical intelligence tasks, um, sort of and framing musical intelligence as being sort of a first class um, sort of uh, concept. Composition being just one one small part of that. I think you know there there are other aspects such as, as music recommendation. We've looked at the problem of, of not just recommending individual pieces, but rec uh, recommending sequences of, of pieces or playlists. 
um, and, and formulated that as a reinforcement learning problem. We've studied the decision, the psychology of music's, uh, or the, the psychology of people's decision making in the sense of um, how does the background music that's being played impact the decisions people make while they're listening to that music. And we found some very real effects there uh, in collaboration with a, with a psychologist. Um, and yeah, so, so that can lead into composition uh, aspects of, of having um, uh, automated processes try to learn how to, to compose or, or create music that, that has um, desired effects on people, either leading to, to greater calm or leading to, uh, to greater efficiency in their work or, or whatever. Um, you know, there may be opportunities for, for that. And, um, you know, there also is the, uh, the just being able to, to collate and, and digest large, uh, large amounts of, um, of past uh, or existing music and able, and being able to sort of generate and summarize, um, patterns that, that fit within it. Um, I think, you know, there's exciting possibilities there. Music, the appreciation of music is fundamentally a human concept and very subjective. And so, you know, I think, um, I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not, con uh, I'm, I'm not going to predict that, that, uh, the act of composition is going to become entirely automated. Um, but I think, you know, like many other things, there will be tools that become useful to human composers and there already have been over the years. Um, to be able to, to generate snippets or to, to complete, uh, to complete bases or to, um, or to come up with new, new melodies. And so, uh, you know, I think like many other tasks, it's, it's one of these the human tasks where there's opportunities for, um, for, uh, joint collaboration between the, the human comp uh, composers and, and, uh, new and improved software tools. I attended UT as a student, and one of the things that struck me about the UT curriculum is the focus on computer science theory. What do you see as the difference between theory and practice? Because, and the reason I ask this is because as I've done a lot of interviews and um, spent some time in act in, in uh, industry, um, I've really felt like the dichotomy between theory and practice. It's it, it doesn't feel uh, as well defined as the sense I got at UT, but that might have just been my uh, naivete and youth. Um, so what's the what's the difference between theory and practice as you see it? First of all, the curriculum at UT has uh, has changed considerably over the years, and um, you know, so that we have we definitely do have uh, theoret we still do emphasize um, theoretical computer science as one of the cornerstones of a good computer science education, but. Um, so is, uh, learning about systems and, um, and opportunities to do, you know, more practical research, um, and within artificial intelligence and other areas as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in all of these areas and AI included, there are, um, sort of, uh, there's opportunities for knowledge gained through theoretical analysis that can help us, um, identify what's possible and what's not possible and can suggest algorithms that work in ideal conditions. Um, and then there's, you know, aspects that can be, uh, when it comes to trying to solve concrete problems, um, that can often be, um, that can often leverage the, the theoretical results, or in some cases can suggest um, new uh, areas for analysis of, of theory. If we, if we, if, if there is a surprising result, or, you know, if there's a landmark result such as, 
um, computers beating the human Go champion or in poker. You know, these are sort of existence proofs that, that something is possible that we weren't sure was possible before. And, uh, you know, then that opens up the question of, of, you know, the algorithms that went into it. What are the theoretical limitations of them? And what are the, um, you know, what can they do and what can't they do? Um, so I think, you know, there, there's, uh, at least within my research program, there's a close interaction between theory and practice, that, that the theory suggests what practical problems we should work on. Um, practical solutions to practical, practical problems suggest what theory and algorithms we should work on. And, uh, you know, really, um, a complete research program should really be able to, to uh, make contact with both, from both directions. To wrap up, I know you're an expert in robotics, and we didn't get to talk about that as much as I would have liked to, but can you give us, uh, from a, to a, speaking to a computer science audience, what are the expectations for what you think we're going to see in the next five years in robotics, and perhaps the things that we won't see? Well, I mean, I think one of the biggest uh, things coming, you know, coming along, which everybody is sort of finally tuned into now, is, is autonomous cars, um, and that is uh, those are robots, and they're probably going to be the most um, popular robot for for quite some time, um, and uh, you know, it's sort of not uh, not a coincidence that 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 and the the other sort of domestic robot that's made the biggest uh, splash. Um, in past years, sort of vacuum cleaners, um, that kind of niche. These and, um, and autonomous cars are essentially need to do navigation. And, um, that's one thing that we've, we've really, the robotics community has made very good progress on and has gotten to a point of, of quite good stability is, um, being able to, uh, to sense the, the local environment well enough to, um, to figure out where to move without bumping into things, especially if you have a wheeled robot. So, you know, robots on wheels navigating through spaces, that's something that, that is, is technically quite well understood. Um, and we're starting to see applications of that. The, the other sort of class of applications there is telepresence robots where, um, you know, they need to move through, through spaces. What we are, um, you know, there's still a lot of progress to be, that needs to be made when it comes to manipulation and being able to uh, pick up and and manipulate or move around objects in the world. And if and when that happens, that will unlock a whole new, um, very large class of, of potential applications. But being able to do that in a robust and affordable way is still, uh, you know, is still something that's being worked on in academic research labs. Um, is not ready, quite ready um, for for prime time. So these warehouses, the Amazon warehouses or the Tesla factories that are building cars, these are not. I mean, I, I, I clearly these are proving grounds for some robotics technology. But um, it sounds like, I mean, I, I don't have any um, a good understanding of what the state of the art is that goes on at those places. Uh, but it sounds like we're not quite. Uh, there yet where you can envision a fully automated um, factory or warehouse? Well, the Amazon factories, the, again, the robots there are doing essentially navigation. They're, they're moving around and, and moving the shelves around. Um, but at least so far, it's still a person who's picking up the objects out of boxes and putting them into, into the boxes to send them. So, so the robots there are doing the navigation. That's the part that, we, that you know, can be done, in, especially in a controlled environment like a warehouse. Um, but the you know the the picking up and manipulation is difficult at least for unconstrained things if you're if you're trying to um manipulate objects in a very con tightly controlled assembly line 
um, then you need just, you know, you can do the same, exactly the same motion or exactly the same action over and over again. That's also something that can be done by robots and has been, you know, done by robots for a long time. But being able to, um, to, to manipulate more uh, dynamically configured objects, just things that happen to be lying around on the table or, or strewn about on the floor or in a dishwasher or, you know, in a laundry basket, things like that. Um, that's still a big, a big technical challenge. Well, Peter Stone, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really interesting talking to you. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.